In terms of foreign policy, we can expect some changes under the Biden administration, largely good changes. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. In contrast to Trump's Make America Great Again slogan, the equally and necessarily ambiguous slogan of the Biden campaign was Build Back Better. Each of the phrases is intended to be interpretable enough so that it resonates with and inspires a wide variety of voters. We don't really know what Build Back Better means in terms of domestic policy, never mind foreign policy. Biden won by not being specific as to solutions. He won by being successfully reassuring after the incredible chaos of the Trump era. Foreign policy never seems to be a driving force in presidential elections, though it is of extreme importance. But as we enter the Biden era, and that does sound good, doesn't it? There really is a blank slate for the incoming administration when it comes to foreign policy. As our returning guest John Pfeffer writes, the Trump team has left messes pretty much everywhere it camped around the world. So what is a new president to do? John Pfeffer is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, and he's written a new article titled Biden Won't Reset U.S. Foreign Policy on His Own. He hasn't taken office yet, but we do know some of the initial members of the Biden team. In terms of foreign policy, we do not yet know if his will be a third term for the Obama policy. But as Pfeffer writes, Joe Biden is a cautious man of the center. He has anchored the moderate camp of the Democratic Party for several decades. For many, he's a welcome antidote to the last four years of fire and fury, like a bite of white bread to alleviate the pain of a mouthful of habanero pepper. That's a good one. And yes, that does bring a welcome sigh of relief. But many of us in what Paul Wellstone referred to as the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party strongly disagreed with much of Obama's military-oriented foreign policy. In this new administration, will the State Department be reactivated after being hollowed out? Will there be renewed diplomacy? Will U.S. foreign policy continue to stir up anger by players like Iran and China and in those nations south of our border? as well as our former allies in Europe. Might there be a new approach to the stated goal of national security, one which has a chance of actually making us more secure from terrorist violence? As Pfeffer's article implies, there is an important and vital role to be played by people outside of power circles in Washington. The people have influenced foreign policy before, and really, we can do it again. Well, again, thanks for being with us, uh, John Pfeffer. As they say, past is prologue, but not always. No one should have expected Biden to pick a transformative foreign policy team. He's not Bernie Sanders. But perhaps my sense is more wishful thinking than based on reality. I don't know. I have a vague sense that Biden is better on foreign policy than was Obama. He was a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where uh, has Biden has come down over the past 50-year career in Washington, how, how has it been in general as his role on uh, foreign relations? Well, you know, it, it is obviously going to be better than uh, Donald Trump in many respects, as I wrote. Uh, 
And as you point out, it could very well be better than Barack Obama as well. I mean, Biden, when he was in the Obama administration, obviously, as vice president, he was skeptical about sending additional troops to uh, Afghanistan, for instance. He had uh, a slightly more transformative arms control policy than the uh, Obama administration more generally. So, for instance, he supported no first use. In other words, a declaration that the United States would not be the first um, to use nuclear weapons, something that uh, Obama himself was not willing to embrace. Hmm. Um, there's also obviously many indications that he's, he's more um, transformative on uh, climate change questions or climate crisis questions than Obama was. And that may have less to do with uh, Biden's foreign policy perspective and more to do with uh, just the growing consensus that we are in a very urgent situation that requires an urgent response. So at least on those three, in those three areas, we might see a, a more progressive position coming from a Biden administration. Of course, I would hope so. And Biden entered the Senate way back in 1972 when I was protesting the war in Vietnam. I'm not sure if you were born yet, John. Do you know what his <laughs> <laughs> what what Biden's position on the war in Vietnam was? Sure, and and I should say I was born, and and I did do my protest in in kindergarten, um, though I didn't really know where <laughs> Vietnam was, and and I was, I was called out by the teacher for for not actually being informed in my office. Oh, good for you! <laughs> but uh, I you taught the teacher. From, yes, I took my cues from my older brother who who told me about opposition to Vietnam War without necessarily telling me where Vietnam was located. Right. But uh, Biden, of course, was uh, was mature enough to uh, to take a position. He didn't fight in the war. He right. had an exemption. But um, and he he was broadly sympathetic with uh, with the anti-war position, um, more for pragmatic reasons, uh -huh. than, say, principle. I think he recognized that by obviously by 1972, the war was not going in the U.S. favor, that we were bogged down in a quagmire. He saw it as largely damaging to U.S. reputation uh, in the world. He didn't go out onto the streets to protest. Right. His perspective was, I'm going to, you know, fight within the system. He spent, you know, 1972 running for, for right. office and, you know, successfully. He was he was very young, yes. 29 at the time. Amazing. And uh, and so he, he really did establish himself as a kind of presence as a young man um, in uh, American politics. And, you know, he was not a radical, um, but he did, he was kind of broadly in support of, uh, shall we say, an, an FDR style um, mm. or or Lyndon Johnson style uh, approach to to American policy. Nice. I mean, Johnson didn't do so well in Vietnam, but aside from that, he was in the FDR mold uh, domestically anyway. And as a New Hampshire Democrat, of course, I always have the opportunity to see every presidential candidate up close. I generally pick Democrats. I seem to remember candidate Biden having interesting and somewhat novel ideas and suggestions back when he was running in 2008 regarding Afghanistan. Tell us about that, please, his take on the Taliban and how such thoughts might play out now that he's about to take office. 
Well, you know, Biden has historically been um, cautious uh, uh, when it comes to, or shall we say, more cautious than your average Democratic Party hawk when it comes to uh, war overseas. I think he recognized that um, certainly by the late 2000s, the U.S. effort in Afghanistan was heading in the same direction that the U.S. effort in Vietnam was heading in the early 70s. In other words, we were getting bogged down. We could get a negotiated solution, talking with the Taliban, getting some kind of an agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, and gracefully withdrawing, or more or less gracefully withdrawing from the situation as much as possible. Mm. Uh, Biden has always had concerns about more extreme forms of uh, Mm. terrorist activity, ISIS, of course, uh, which remains a concern, not only in Afghanistan, but elsewhere Mm. um, around the world. And so, you know, even today, Biden is is skeptical about withdrawing all troops from Afghanistan. Uh, we're, We're going to see as long as this goes through, uh, a pretty dramatic reduction of our remaining forces in Afghanistan, uh, approximately 4,500 there now, and Trump wants to withdraw a couple thousand. And the remaining forces, well, I don't think that Biden is either going to rescind uh, Trump's order or dramatically reduce that number largely because he has argued that they serve a kind of counterterrorism function. Um, For instance, if ISIS were to, uh, or some Al-Qaeda variant were to really grow in Afghanistan and become a a threat, not only to the U.S., but to, to other actors, obviously. So my guess is, again, he's going to kind of cut down the middle on this issue. And, you know, he has declared, of course, that he would like to see the end of uh, America's endless wars. Yes. But that has generally come with a couple of caveats. Mm-hmm. One, of course, is, is the, the presence of U.S. troops for counterterrorism uh, purposes. The other is uh, it's unclear whether he would dramatically scale back America's drone wars. And of course, it was the Obama administration right. that expanded those, those drone wars. The Trump administration pretty much kept it the same, although there, there was some expansion in certain areas. The one innovation from the Trump administration was to really hide the drone war as much as possible, uh, basically scaling back on transparency and mm-hmm. reporting on the on, uh, efforts. Uh, so if anything, we might see some increased transparency on that, but I'm not sure we're going to see the Biden administration dramatically uh, reign in the, the air war. Yeah, and Obama really seemed to have a real fascination with, with drones making war. That way, our guys didn't get hurt, but their guys did. And it wasn't exactly secret from the uh, victims of the drone war, sort of like uh, the secret war in Cambodia that Nixon had. It was secret from us, but not from the people of Cambodia. Didn't mm-hmm. Biden say something about uh, dividing? Oh, well, he did say that about that Iraq. Uh-huh. Um, that yeah. was his his famous uh, kind of proposal. And, and you know, there was some... There was some on-the-ground viability, I suppose you could say, to that, since the Kurds had already established themselves in, uh, in Kurdistan, in the northern part. Um, and then you had a kind of uh, Sunni-Shia uh, division elsewhere in the country. Um, but 
there wasn't a lot of uh, traction for that yeah. proposal at the time. Um, and I mean, the Kurds obviously supported it, but, yes. um, but there, the U S was far more interested in, in maintaining a united Iraq as a bulwark in the region of U S influence to uh, balance Iran, of course. Um, and uh, and also to facilitate whatever you know oil extraction we would like to continue in in that country. Although that became less and less important as U.S. dependency on foreign oil declined yes. uh, over the last decade. Yeah, we'll be talking about that in an upcoming show as well. I do remember hearing Biden, and I remember being impressed with that idea on Iraq, that that it was different. Of course. Uh, you know, he, he later changed when he became vice president because he doesn't, you know, he wasn't creating policy, but now he's on his own. And talk about uh, that general area of the world. There's Iran. Trump ordered the assassination of Iran's Major General Qasem Soleimani, who had been the second most powerful man in that sovereign nation. More recently, he directed the murder of Iran's leading nuclear scientist, and Biden, of course, has supported the Iran nuclear deal. Can we expect a more sane, less provocative approach to Iran in the new administration? What do you think? There could be a lot of political pressure on that. Absolutely. I, and I think, uh, you know, Biden has signaled his support for re-entering uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Iran nuclear deal, which the Obama administration brokered. Uh, it was, of course, a signature achievement of the uh, Obama administration and of Secretary of State John Kerry, although Hillary Clinton did do some of the groundwork for it and um, identifying Oman as a uh, as a mediating influence. But um, uh, I think the, the the reality is that, you know, in the last four years, the Trump administration's stated policy on Iran was, well, mm. it, Let's just say it didn't work. <laughs> and, uh, it's, its stated policy was, of course, to replace the Iran nuclear deal with a better deal, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it didn't. It didn't do that. And in the meantime, Iran, you know, uh, inc dramatically increased its uh, sure. its store of uh, of you know uh, uranium that it can use yes. to, to make nuclear weapons out of, if yeah, it so desires. Yeah. Um, the other that, that was the stated goal of the Trump administration. The unstated goal, of course, was to put so much pressure on Iran by increasing economic sanctions directly and indirectly on any countries that would do uh, business with Iran, that uh, it would force regime change, that the current government in Iran would collapse and be replaced by who knows what exactly. Mm -hmm. um, but something that would presumably be more amenable to American influence. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to imagine where that would come from exactly, uh, since there aren't really any forces inside Iran that would um, that would could replace the current uh, government oh, and achieve that goal. So uh, so that both the stated um, goal of the Trump administration and the underlying goal, neither of which happened, uh, and so now we're left with a situation where. Um, uh, the United States can either continue to put enormous pressure on Iran or it can go back to the Iran nuclear deal. But it's not so easy to do that. Um, it's not easy to do that for a couple of reasons. One is because 
Iran is not happy with what the United States has done over the last four years, both uh, its economic sanctions and the cost that has had for the Iranian economy. Uh, and it's not happy about the assassination of Soleimani or the assassination of the nuclear scientist. It was probably done by Israel, but with uh, yeah. a green light given by the Trump administration. Oh, sure. um, and uh, so they're not happy. Uh, there have been calls for uh, compensation, for instance, yeah. uh, for not only the, re the elimination of the additional sanctions that have been placed on Iran, but economic compensation for the losses that the, uh, Iran has sustained. Um, now, uh, more recently, the, the government of uh, Hassan Rouhani has said, okay, well, we're, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let, let you come back into the agreement without compensation. So let's get rid of those sanctions. Uh, getting rid of the sanctions is going to be delicate, though, because probably the Biden administration is going to want to make it a kind of tit-for-tat thing where um, Iran comes back in compliance with the JCPO, JCPOA with respect to uranium enrichment. Um, and so that has to be negotiated. And it has to be negotiated, well, pretty quickly because there are going to be elections in Iran in June. Right. And at the moment, the, the so-called reformists, Rouhani, uh, the foreign minister Zarif, um, they don't necessarily have a lot of political capital. I mean, they put a lot of yeah. um, uh, a lot of emphasis on on the nuclear deal for five years ago, mm -hmm. and uh, and the benefits that would accrue to Iran as a result of that deal. And there were benefits immediately. Sure. I mean, the, the elimination of sanctions caused a a spike in uh, oil production and oil sales and an important uh, improvement in Iran's economy. Um, but uh, once the once the Trump administration withdrew from the agreement, then, of course, everything turned around and plummeted, both oil production and economic performance. So, uh, in other words, we have uh, several months within which uh, the the reformists can negotiate with the Biden administration, get the JCPOA back on, and hopefully see some kind of uh, immediate benefits from that before the elections. If that doesn't happen, uh -huh. then the hardliners will return, and they will make it much more difficult for um, for the for the United States and Iran to to basically not only operate within the JCPOA, but any other potential agreements um, pursuant to that uh, nuclear deal. And there's also the U.S. Senate, which has a lot of Republicans in it, so he's going to have to walk a fine line, the president will, between the elections coming up in Iran and the politics here in these currently United States. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is John Pfeffer, who is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus. And we're talking about foreign policy. What is likely ahead in the Biden administration? And he's going to need a push. Another area, of course, is Iraq. To me, having any politician acknowledge he or she made a mistake is a welcome and rather extreme rarity Biden admitted his error in voting for Bush's war against Iraq. Iraq is currently really a mess. What should we expect from the Biden team on Iraq going forward? Well, first, with uh, U.S. troop presence, we, we don't have that many troops in Iraq, a couple thousand. 
Trump wanted to reduce that by a small number, uh, I think 500. And that will probably go forward. And as with Afghanistan, I don't really expect the Biden administration to um, reverse that or uh, or go further. Um, and you're right that Biden has, um, like the Obama administration, perhaps more generally, um, and, you know, Obama ran for office uh, on this point of view that right. the Iraq war was a mistake. Um, and uh, I expect that that will continue in a Biden administration. The the challenge is really um, the future of Iraq and and its relationship, uh, you know, the its relationship primarily with Iran um, and with Saudi Arabia, uh, and the the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia is really kind of the the primary axis uh, in the Middle East at the moment. Um, Saudi Arabia has tried to woo Iraq, um, has tried to kind of uh, bring it over to its side. But, you know, there's an enormous Shia population in Iraq. Uh, they see Iran as a kind of spiritual home. Um, there are political parties and, and uh, paramilitaries that are more directly affiliated with Iran. So uh, that continues to be a, a, dyna- a dynamic for the country, you know, it it can be a say uh, an important mediator in the region, uh, just as some uh, some of the Gulf countries have emerged, uh, like Oman, for instance, um, and at one time or another Qatar. But uh, Iraq is really a far more important uh, or has greater potential to mediate between Iran and Saudi Arabia because of the confessional uh, confessional makeup of the country, because of its location, because of its history, et cetera. So uh, if the Biden administration was smart, it would reverse the Trump approach, which which was basically to pressure Iraq as much as possible to uh, abandon whatever ties it has to Iran and, and more firmly occupy the Saudi camp. And appreciate, you know, the the delicate balance within Iraq and the del- delicate geopolitical balance that Iraq contributes to, and take advantage of that. Um, turn what many people have considered a, a liability actually into mm. a uh, a virtue. You mentioned the Saudi government; they're not nice guys, and the t- Trump team, along with Netanyahu, they're sort of a shall we say, colluding together. And and the Saudis seem to have Iran as their sworn enemy. The Saudis are making war a terrible human catastrophe in Yemen, allegedly as a, as a proxy war against Iran. Certainly Trump has uh, been seemingly close to uh, Saudi Arabia, he hasn't said any criticism at all that I can see. What, what should we expect uh, from Biden with regard to uh, the Saudi kingdom. And they're, they're pretty brutal. They really are. What, yeah. what, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. And and I think the Biden administration, is, that will probably be its, its more, even more dramatic kind of reversal of policy than even with Iran. Um, Donald Trump and Jared Kushner basically went all in um, with, uh, with Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they not only supported the Saudi-led war in Yemen, uh, but they um, basically you know, support, saw Saudi Arabia as kind of a key element 
in their effort to bolster Israel's position in yes. the region. Mm-hmm. So uh, really uh, helping to facilitate uh, a rapprochement or a stronger rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, um, and to use Saudi wealth to kind of an attempt to buy off Palestinians. And that was the essence of oh. Jared Kushner's deal of the century. Yeah. It was just tell the Palestinians, look, you know, uh, we'll give you the most vestigial kind of political state possible, uh, but you will get a lot of money from the Saudis. You know, so, you know, basically, uh, we expect you to relinquish your hopes for a full state and full sovereignty uh, in exchange for, you know, basically a, a whatever, a right. bunch of hotels, uh, you know, some new highways, whatever, oh you know, that the Saudis would, would support. So this this really was the kind of the, the 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 vision of a new Middle East from Trump and Kushner. Uh, Biden's going to come in. He's going to say, first, uh, we're not happy with the war in Yemen. Good. And uh, your listeners might remember that, you know, basically Congress had a bipartisan um, uh, true. effort to to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen, you know, providing both weapons and logistical support for the Saudis. Um, and uh, Trump vetoed it. So, you know, this is some this is an easy one for the Biden administration. He doesn't have to, like, encounter a lot of opposition from the Senate and from House Republicans. He can uh, he can really push that forward from day one. Uh, the human rights issues, that's a little bit more challenging. Yeah. I think there 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 definitely was some disgust from even Republicans uh, over uh, a variety of human rights violations uh, coming from Saudi Arabia. And I I think that, you know, uh, Biden has emphasized that he's going to put human rights back at the center of U.S. foreign policy. Obviously, Donald Trump didn't care at all about human rights. So I think we'll see a a kind of dramatic reversal uh, on that. The real question is how much uh, influence and power does the U.S. continue to wield in the Middle East? I mean, it's uh, one thing sure. to take a policy against Saudi Arabia or against, you know, settlements in Israel, and Netanyahu's more, um, more uh, vigorous, shall we say, more hardline position on establishing uh, settlements in the West Bank. Um, but uh, it's another thing altogether for the United States to actually be able to influence those actors. And I'm not sure that the U.S. Yeah. has as much influence today as it did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, it's entirely possible for Netanyahu to, Netanyahu to say, I don't care. I don't really care what y'all say. Uh, we got what we wanted from the United States over four years of the Trump administration, mm. and we'll consolidate those gains and ignore you. And the Saudis obviously have enough money to, to continue doing what they're doing. Um without U.S. support, um, and they may just decide, you know, okay, you, you were helpful for all those years, and we don't really care, you know, whether you, you know, <laughs> there's enough people inside Saudi Arabia that are skeptical of the United States anyway, they just might stop listening to us altogether. <laughs> Why should they bother? we become sort of irrelevant in many ways. There's so many other areas of foreign policy, and I care a lot about foreign policy. It never seems to motivate people voting. However, we're talking about it anyway. And Trump, the pro-Trumpers insisted that Biden is a puppet of China. 
What is the reality? I mean, they make things up, as we know. What is the reality? What, what should we expect uh, his new uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken uh, approach to China be? Well, you know, back, you know, back in the, the late 90s, or the early 2000s, certainly Biden was, um, was a pragmatist when it came to China. He supported economic engagement. Um, he was uh, skeptical of, obviously, China's human rights record and other aspects of Chinese policy. But generally speaking, he saw uh, relations with China through an economic lens. And you know, that it made sense. The United States and China were developing a very strong economic relationship. It became very important for um, the U.S. economy, both in terms of imports and exports. As uh, time went on, obviously, the relationship started to shift. I mean, even even the first uh, term of the uh, Obama administration, you know, Biden continued to see China that way. And there were some important initiatives that the United States and China inked, not just on economy, but even on uh, cooperation on clean energy development, uh, technical cooperation, and that Biden supported. But by the end of, uh, of the Obama term, uh, second term, that is, uh, there was a shift in elite opinion about China here in the United States. Uh, there had previously been a very clear kind of engagement camp uh-huh. and a very clear containment camp. And the engagement camp practically disappeared. Uh, you, it would be very difficult mm-hmm. as we headed into the Trump administration to find China scholars, China watchers who continued to support uh, engagement with China. And many of them cheered either quietly or, uh, or vocally, uh, many of the measures that the Trump administration implemented, such as uh, trade sanctions, tariffs against uh, Chinese goods, uh, sanctions against um, uh, individuals uh, as a result of human rights uh, abuses in uh, Xinjiang province, with Uyghur population, or against Hong Kong. Yes. So, uh, but the interesting thing is that Biden hadn't really adjusted his uh, perspectives. I mean, uh, uh, even in the, the campaign, he continued to basically adhere to an earlier position, which was clearly in favor of engagement. And I think that's what generated this perception that, that Biden was uh, a puppet of China, which was, uh-huh. which was ridiculous. But anyway, that was, that was the origin, perhaps. And it was uh, clear that the, that changed, though, during the campaign, that uh, his advisors realized that it just didn't look good for Biden to continue to parrot the things he, was, he had been saying 10 or 15 years earlier, and Biden switched. Uh, so he started to refer, for instance, to Xi Jinping as a thug. Uh, mm-hmm. He started to raise the human rights issues more uh, vociferously. Um, and so I think, uh, now, of course, Obviously, in any election cycle, China bashing has figured prominently, <laughs> sure. and candidates tend to have changed their position once they become president. Um, and I mean, that was the case even with Trump. Uh, you know, Trump, you know, became buddy buddy at, at first right. with Jinping. Uh, and I expect that we'll see uh, the tempering of, of that rhetoric when Biden actually becomes president. I don't expect him to continue to call Xi Jinping a thug. I expect him to reach out to Xi Jinping and start negotiating a variety of things, uh, you know, mm. trade uh, and so forth. 
The easy thing, I think, for, for Biden to do is uh, to remove the tariffs. I mean, it's one thing to maintain sanctions against China for its actions, but the tariffs that the Trump administration imposed on Chinese goods and the retaliatory tariffs that China imposed on American goods have had a devastating effect to American farmers and manufacturers. And if the Democratic Party hopes to cultivate that constituency for the midterm elections, obviously, Mm -hmm. for the next presidential election, then removing those tariffs is going to be uh, negotiating them down, shall we say, with China, will be a a clear priority. I mean, one of the absurdities of the last four years, for instance, has been the amount of soybeans, for instance, that the federal government has purchased from American farmers uh, because the farmers couldn't sell them to China any longer because of the tariffs. And China wasn't purchasing them. So American farmers were stuck with all these soybeans. And either they were going to go out of business and lose their farms, or the federal government was going to buy them up in bulk and do God knows what with them, uh, you know, turn them into soybean burgers and serve them in uh, cafeterias and schools and prisons. Um, so it, that just doesn't make any sense for the federal government to be you know, doing those outlays. So I think that early kind of action that that Biden can do is to negotiate away those tariffs, um, probably, you know, negotiate some next stage in uh, a trade deal with China. Uh Um, There there are still going to be disagreements, uh, obviously disagreements around technology and intellectual property rights, disagreements in the South China Sea. Uh, But, you know, I, I think we'll probably see a kind of a selective engagement with China coming uh-huh. from the Biden administration and the maintenance of, you know, selective containment as well. Sounds reasonable. One thing I, I have to ask, and, and I have a first cousin who lived in Hong Kong for a long time, and uh, he still feels very, you know, concerned about their future. Uh, Hong, uh, Beijing is getting really tough with Hong Kong. They're, they're, really cracking down on their freedoms. I, I wonder, I mean, that could put Biden in a, a difficult spot of, you know, talking about human rights in Hong Kong. Uh, I, obviously, Trump didn't give a darn about human rights. But wh- what do you think about uh, uh, Biden with regard to Beijing and Hong Kong? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a tough question. And, and you're right, China is cracking down on Hong Kong. Um, it has, uh, you know, basically restricted um, political involvement on the part of uh, uh, critical uh, politicians uh, and student activists. Um, It has put greater controls on press. um, And, you know, the the Hong Kong folks, the people of Hong Kong, expected that they would have 50 years of of some kind of uh, autonomous status within China after the handover. Um, And for a variety of reasons, Beijing has decided that that's not acceptable, that uh, this notion of uh, one country, two systems uh, is not not tenable. Uh, And it's not tenable, I think they that from Beijing's perspective, they see it not just as a problem for uh, of Hong Kong, but that uh, uh, if the folks in Hong Kong have uh, have this kind of challenge or, or uh, they they uh, mount this kind of challenge to Beijing's authority, it might have a ripple effect uh-huh. on the mainland. 
Now, as it turns out, if you if you look at uh, mainland reactions to Hong Kong, there's not a lot of support uh, for. Yeah, I mean, there are some critical intellectuals um, and some activists on the mainland who have been supportive of Hong Kong. But uh, the bulk of public opinion has been pretty much nationalist in, in uh, uh, response. So I think Beijing feels that, you know, it, it can do what it wants in Hong Kong without expecting too much of a backlash domestically. Internationally is another question, yeah. um, but, you know, uh, Beijing thinks it has law on its side. I mean, it has the handover agreement um, and its own interpretation of what one country, two systems means. What that means for Biden, well, uh, you know, effectively, you know, the, the Trump administration has established the policy. It, it put into place some sanctions against Beijing. Uh, individuals, obviously, Carrie Lam, the, the mm-hmm. administrator, chief administrator in uh, Hong Kong, um, but has not put, did not push Beijing, did not draw a line in the sand, so to speak. And I think Biden will probably adhere to a similar approach, probably keeps those sanctions in place, but not make it a uh, a major issue. You know, the, the key activists are already leaving the country yeah. uh, or leaving, I should say, the city, um, departing for Taiwan. Um, perhaps the, the more interesting question is not Hong Kong, but Taiwan, uh, because the Trump administration was really changing U.S. policy uh, on the two, quote unquote, two China issue and uh, according Taiwan far more um, respect and acknowledgement than any previous administration. The question is whether the Biden administration will reverse that and go back to the status quo ante, which was basically ignoring officially uh, Taiwan, although obviously dealing with it at an unofficial uh, Mm. level, or whether it will continue to to accord Taiwan greater status, not only in bilateral relations, but for instance, Taiwan's presence in the World Health Organization and other international bodies. And I do believe we will rejoin the World Health Organization, which it just amazes me that Trump pulled out of that. For those of you who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Having a great discussion here with John Pfeffer, who is Director of Foreign Policy and Focus. We're talking about Biden's foreign policy, what we can expect. We haven't mentioned Russia I mean, I found it fascinating that when Putin recognized Biden as the winner, well, then everybody else recognized uh, Biden as the winner, too. Mc, uh, McConnell recognized him after Putin did, too. What I mean, Trump just loved Putin, obviously. What kind of changes should we expect, do you think, with Biden and Russia? Yeah. Well, you know, folks might remember that Biden uh, was kind of the face of the reset with Russia under the Obama administration. Biden traveled to Russia, met with Putin, met with uh, Medvedev, and was, you know, uh, very vocal in his, uh, his support of an improvement in U.S.-Russian relations. Looked at Russia much the same way he looked at China. There were economic interests here. The U.S. and Russia could cooperate Um fruitfully. Now, of course, since that reset, uh, any number of factors have complicated U.S.-Russian relations from uh, Russia's role in the Ukraine civil war, its, uh, its annexation of Crimean Peninsula, its human rights violations within the country, 
uh, its assassination of critics oh, uh, overseas, uh, its oil politics, its, its efforts to um, basically sell oil to uh, Europe through uh, uh, various pipelines, um, oil and natural gas, I should say. Um, so there are lots of complicating yeah, factors, really. and the United States has uh, a wide range of sanctions that have been applied to Russia that Russia's not happy with. Uh, Russia's also not happy with uh, the efforts of the United States over the years to expand NATO to its doorstep. Um, and that would include efforts to, at one point or another, include U- Ukraine That's and true. Georgia. Yeah. Um, the three former Baltic states and now countries are members of, of NATO, as is virtually all of uh, East Central Europe. So all of these are, are challenges. I think Biden comes in with the possibility of, again, selective engagement with Russia. And that engagement, of course, would begin with arms control. Uh, The U.S. has really only one major Mm. arms control treaty left after Trump withdrew from a number of other ones, uh, including the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, the Open Skies Agreement. Um, And that one remaining agreement is the New START Agreement. Uh, agreement on strategic uh, limitations or limitations on strategic nuclear weapons. And that's due to expire uh, in early February. So Biden has an opportunity almost immediately to reach out to Putin and say, hey, let's extend this for five years. And I I expect that that will happen. Uh Um, And so that will be kind of the first thing. And there are possibilities of other um, arms control uh, negotiations that could take place with Russia that I think would benefit both sides, not to mention the world as a whole. Um, So that would be a a starting point. A second would, of course, be reentry into the Iran nuclear agreement, which uh, Russia supports. A third could possibly be um, uh, cooperation around uh, climate change yes. questions. I mean, Russia actually has a pretty bad policy on um, climate change mm-hmm. since Russia, the Russian economy is, is so heavily dependent on oil and natural gas sure. production and Dirty export. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, so I, I, I think Russia has to somehow be brought into um, more the the international consensus shall we say mm. about the urgency of the climate crisis and and that should be a major point of of cooperation between the United States and Russia. Um, other questions that can are going to continue to be challenging for Biden: the status of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, who is you know really yeah, dependent right. on Russian support, or Turkey, uh, Turkey, mm. which under uh, Erdogan has. Has, I mean, Turkey, Turkey is a member of NATO, but it, it kind of surprised everyone and pissed off a number of Western allies by uh, buying a Russian uh, anti-missile uh, system. And like, why, why are you doing that? You're a NATO country. <laughs> why are you buying something from Russia? Um, so that, that's been a major point of friction. And so uh, whether Biden can kind of navigate that in a, in a sensible way, perhaps persuading Turkey to not um, uh, put that system into place, even though it bought it, uh, would be, you know, uh, one particularly useful effort. Uh, mm. But that would, you know, again, require some kind of, of uh, if only informal negotiations with Russia. So, you know, there's, there's lots to, oh, to, yeah. for the Biden administration to do. 
But the, the expectation coming out of Russia is that the Biden administration is going to be too beset by domestic problems. Yeah, uh, it's going to be uh, overwhelmed by political polarization, and it doesn't really expect much from the Biden administration. So, uh, and this, I think, is going to hold true for a lot of countries uh, uh, looking at the United States over the next four years. Uh, that is, they're going to hedge their bets. They're not going to invest a lot of time and capital uh, into improving relations with the United States um, because they don't expect that even if there is a political will mm. in a Biden administration, it won't be able to push anything through Congress. Mm. It won't be able to appropriate any money towards that end. And it may it may well be ousted from uh, from power in four years anyway. Mm, that is true. But uh, the people do have some ability. I mean, public opinion does matter. I definitely want to talk about some of the personnel in the uh, uh, foreign policy team. But I have to ask, and we could spend a few hours on Palestine, Israel and Palestine. Any, I don't know if this is answerable in a, just a couple of minutes, any sign that Biden uh, might be slightly different on Israel and Palestine? It's like a third rail of politics to, to suggest changing anything with regard to, you know, unquestioned support for whatever Israel wants to do. Any sense on that, John? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, you know, we, we began to see a shift from the Obama administration in, in the final months. Uh, and, and there was tension. There was obviously tension between Obama and Netanyahu. They did not get along. Um, and I think at a certain point, the administration just said, okay, we're tired of, of, of you, <laughs> Netanyahu, and we're not just going to follow your your bidding. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, th there was a, a much clearer position against uh, Netanyahu's policies on settlements. Um, obviously, a reversal of that over the last four years with Trump basically giving Netanyahu everything he wanted, practically. Yes. Yeah. Um, I suspect that we will see a return to a, uh, a very kind of irritated and frustrated United States. Um, whether Netanyahu is around or not, I mean, it's, you know, Netanyahu's yeah. own political base has eroded. Oh, yeah. Um, he has found it difficult to, um, to govern, uh, his governing partners have recently just said, forget it. <laughs> We're tired <laughs> of working with you. Yeah. We'll, we'll risk another election. So it, it's very possible that Netanyahu himself will finally be dethroned. But whether that means we'll have a more accommodating mm -hmm. uh, leader in Israel is another question. Right. I mean, unfortunately, the, the pol politics in Israel shifted rather dramatically to the right. Yes. Um, and uh, we may have just as difficult a negotiating partner that replaces Netanyahu. I think Biden, uh, however, is in, in here, you know, your point about political pressure is, yes. is important and, and plays a role. There has been a shift in the, in the public opinion here yes. in the United States. Uh, we've seen the American Jewish community become increasingly frustrated and irritated and disgusted, frankly, yes. with uh, Netanyahu's position. And, you know, for the most part, American Jews, and there are exceptions, of course, but for the most part, they remain liberal yes. and uh, and committed to some kind of a, a solution to um, the uh, Israel uh, Palestinian question, uh, even if the two-state solution is, well, not as viable now as it was, say, five years ago. Um, but there there could be pressure on um, the Biden administration 
coming from the the Jewish community yes. to to take a a, a much more um, uh, uh, much more um, critical position yes. towards uh, Israel. So that that might have an influence. Oh, I certainly hope so. Well, let's get to some of the people on the team. Uh, the logical place to start is Biden's pick for Secretary of State. What can be expected from Antony Blinken? Mm-hmm. So Blinken is, uh, you know, I think very, very much a Biden man uh, with uh, Biden's perspective on foreign policy. Uh, I think they've worked together for, for years, for decades. Um Blinken himself is an Atlanticist, uh, very, um, very strongly in favor of improving relations between the United States and Europe, um, and that includes NATO. Blinken, Blinken is uh, fluent in French, so I think he'll get along with the French very well, which will be a, a nice change <laughs> from the last four years. Um, but also because the French are really seeing themselves uh, under Macron as uh, you know the the uh, upholders of a united Europe um, at a time when things have become very fractious, when the UK is you know still negotiating its Brexit, mm-hmm. when Poland and Hungary have staked out you know increasingly anti-democratic positions within the EU, um, France still is saying you know. Uh, the, the future of Europe is is a united one. And so I think Blinken is going to be very much um, supportive of that particular position. Uh, on other things, well, you know, I, I think it's consistent with, you know, the positions Biden has taken throughout the campaign. So I don't think we'll see any dramatic changes. Uh, you know, the advantage the Democrats will have is that they have, they'll have John Kerry in uh, yeah. uh, in the cabinet. Uh, as the climate czar, his position yeah. will uh, be included in the cabinet. Uh, Kerry, of course, has you know enormous uh, connections, networking oh, yeah. um, capabilities, mm-hmm. and so I think that that will that will undergird um, Blinken's uh-huh. uh, work as well. I mean, it'd be almost as if we have two secretaries of state, uh-huh. um, yeah, though, of course, Kerry will be, you know, yeah. will be subordinate. But uh, it, it means that the climate issue will have increasing salience oh, and yeah. importance in foreign policy. And, uh, and and that is as it should be. Competence, actual competence. Who'd have thunk it? Now, Biden's pick to head the CIA is Avril Haines. I don't know anything about her. And the CIA has been... Uh, Oh, an interesting uh, entity for quite some time. Would tell us about her, please. Sure. So she's, of course, kind of a, a CIA, um, long-standing CIA uh, operative, if you will. Um, she was the deputy director of the CIA, first woman to hold that position. Um, she has, you know, had uh, a long-standing interest in uh, in expertise in national security affairs. Um, I don't expect her to really be a transformative voice. Uh, obviously, she'll be better than Gina Haspel. And yeah. Haspel was responsible for destroying torture, uh, torture tapes when she was uh, oh, a bureau head over, out in uh, Southeast Asia. Um, so, you know, it would be improvement over that. But I don't expect, you know, uh, a... Uh, you know, I don't expect her to revolutionize the CIA. <laughs> um, 
I mean, maybe we'll see, um, you know, a, a more modest role for the CIA in, say, drone wars, but no guarantee of that, given that, you know, she was, you know, intri- intricately involved in that during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, on, on the intelligence side, I mean, there are all sorts of other things that, uh, uh, that you know, we would like to see in terms of reform uh, on surveillance, both of uh, of you know, American citizens yeah, really. but also you know, foreigners, as well as you know the kind of the operations that have run amok over the last decade uh, involving the United States, whether it was um, cyber operations or assistance and uh, assassinations. You know, things that the CIA was not supposed to be involved in um, <laughs> after 1975, after yeah. the, uh-huh. the revelations of CIA involvement in such things and dirty tricks and so on. You know, I, I don't necessarily see her as, as right. being a transformative person, but we won't see uh, as disgusting a CIA, shall we say, as <laughs> we've seen at some points in the past. That would be nice couple other things. Biden does talk about American leadership. I wonder if there'll be the same old intention to exercise control of the world, if that's what is meant by American leadership. Is there any possibility, I think I know the answer to this, is there any possibility that we might start to become an equal player to respect others and not have to dominate everything? Are we far away from that still? We can find some language to that effect in what Biden has said. Um, whether that becomes operational is another question. And, and, and to a certain extent, what Biden says and what he intends is not as relevant as what the relative power of the United States is. You know? So even if the United States were to assert itself as a dominant player, as say it did in the 1990s as a single superpower in the world, uh, the world is no longer willing to accept that mm-hmm. uh, That position from the United States. Certainly, China's influence in the world has grown tremendously, uh, not only as a superpower, in other words, its its sheer economic and uh, military capacity, but also its influence in international organizations, as well as its construction of parallel international organizations. I mean, it has constructed uh, effectively its own IMF and World Bank uh, to be the kind of financing uh, arms of their One Belt, One Road projects, their infrastructure development is around China. So obviously, China is there as an alternative uh, to countries uh, that are not happy with the United States. The EU continues to be a a powerful player. Um, So for instance, even though Trump wanted to uh, deep six the Iran nuclear deal. Europe basically kept it alive. Sure, yeah. uh, it said we don't care what you you do. Trump <laughs> will will continue to. We'll even set up an alternative uh, financing mechanism um, to, uh, to to finance trade with Iran. You know, we don't have to use the American dollars, and we can really? escape Treasury uh, Department sanctions. Um, so Europe continues to be an important force. And then there are other countries, you know, that have importance on the world stage. India, for instance, oh, Indonesia. Yeah. Um, these are these are critical countries. Um, so uh, the United States is going to be forced to to choose between the other two options. Okay, if there are three options: one, America dominant; 
two, America equal, three, America isolated. Trump basically went with option three, and Biden could go with option three, but uh, and he could try to reassert American dominance. But I think the choice will be basically thrust upon him. uh, And that is the second choice of America cooperating in a more equal uh, relationship. Boy, I would hope so. We we never learn from history. I've discovered that. But one thing, you know, protests in the street absolutely matter. It, there hasn't been a lot since the Vietnam War, but politicians always need to feel politically safe before they stick their necks out on anything. You have some suggestions as to what ways uh, progressives can focus on what areas we can make a difference. I wonder if you could just briefly share just a couple of those. What what can we do to to help uh, bend him? We identified the opportunities that look most viable. I mean, so for instance, on Yemen, uh, we were able to put together a bipartisan coalition to end U.S. support for uh, the Saudi-led war there. And that that is clearly something we can push for on the streets if necessary, but in the halls of Congress that I think will yield uh, results. On other issues, I think Let's take a look at the Iran and Cuba. The United States, on, during the Obama administration, supported uh, reconciliation and rapprochement with both of those countries. Part of it was um, public pressure. Yes. Uh, there, there was, there were, you know, folks, Iranian Americans, for instance, pushing for a nuclear deal. There were Cuban Americans that uh, yes. supported rapprochement with Cuba. But what really, I think, made a difference in both those cases was the leveraging of economic interests. There were very powerful players. The oil and gas industry in the United States had very much wanted to have an on-the-ground presence in Iran and therefore supported uh, that agreement. And with Cuba, uh, the United States, especially on a state-by-state level, mid- Midwest states in particular, uh, wanted to have agricultural relationships with sure. Cuba. And in fact, it was George W. Bush who uh, who really set the stage by making it easier for states to have uh, agricultural relationships on a state-by-state basis Uh with Cuba, uh, evading the the embargo that was in place at a federal level. Um, And so when Obama proposed detente with Cuba, he had the backing of some key Republicans. So I think as we prepare to influence the Biden administration, um, we should be looking at those uh, other players, the opportunities for you know what, what remains of bipartisan you know, yeah. activity in Congress, uh, but also you know who are the segments of American society that we can leverage because it's not always the number of people you bring onto the street; it's also the the people you can reference who are behind you, who are important, powerful players. Uh, that will make a difference uh-huh. in uh, U.S. foreign policy. Well, thank you so much. We could talk for another couple hours or so. Always interesting uh, to talk to you, John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus, and the website for that is uh, fpif.org. That's correct. Thank you so much for being with us, and uh, a little bit of hope for a better future. Thanks so much, John Pfeffer. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light In the darkness of insanity Oh yeah, I ask myself Is all hope gone? 
Is there only pain, hatred, and misery? Oh, yeah. And each time I feel like this inside, there's one thing I want to know. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding?